If you have your copy of the Scriptures, let me encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 will be our text for this morning, and specifically, even within that section, verses 9 through 11. And I apologize for the stuffiness this morning, but thank you for bearing with me. And it's, it seems to be just a cold. So. It has been said that ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. And in fact, if you look over the history of the 20th century... The story of the 20th century is a testimony to the fact that ideas have consequences. Think back to the travesties of the Second World War. Ideas, thoughts, beliefs, particularly beliefs about who we are, who other people are, have consequences. In our passage this morning, we see the fact that ideas have consequences. And specifically, the idea, the notion, the belief, the fact, the undisputable, the undeniable fact, though it is disputed, though it is denied, when all is said and done, it will not be disputed, it will not be denied, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That idea has consequences. This morning, we're going to consider the consequences of that idea. Not all of them. We don't have time to consider all of the, uh, the consequences of the fact that Jesus is Lord. But Paul makes very plain here, I think, that there are consequences to the fact that Jesus is Lord as he brings to a conclusion his appeal to the Philippians to live in service to one another. There is a connection. Living in service to one another and Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's observe this connection this morning. Follow along as I read, actually beginning in verse 1. Philippians 2, 1 through 11, because this entire section holds together and really even goes back into chapter 1, but let's consider chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind." Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we consider what the Apostle Paul writes, especially in verses 9 through 11, as I have said, Jesus is Lord. The fact that Jesus is Lord has consequences for Paul's call for believers to serve one another. And in order to see this, there are three things that we need to notice as Paul draws attention to the Lordship of Jesus in verses 9 through 11. First, we need to see that Jesus is exalted as Lord. Jesus is exalted as Lord. But not only is Jesus exalted as Lord, Jesus is acknowledged as Lord. He is exalted, He is acknowledged as Lord. And then thirdly, the Father is glorified. In all of this, the Father is glorified. Let's see what the Apostle Paul says about these three things here. First, Jesus is exalted as Lord. Did you notice? Perhaps you noticed it last week. Or did you notice as we read this week? There is a shift in attention. There's a shift in focus that occurs at verse 9. Listen again to verses 6 through 11 as Paul describes the Lord Jesus and His work on our behalf, and notice the, the change that takes place at verse 9. Back up to verse 6. Who, that is Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you notice the shift that occurs there in verse 9? It happens in a couple of ways. There's a shift in focus on persons. Verses 6-8 through eight are fully attended to what Jesus has done. Not regarding equality with God, a thing to be grasped, or as we talked about last week, a thing to be used to His own advantage. But He humbled Himself by taking on the form of a servant and being found in human likeness. What did He do? He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Then, in verse 9, the subject of the action switches, doesn't it? It's no longer Jesus, but now it is God. It is God the Father. And then it's all creation. But there's another shift. In verses 6-8, through eight, Paul's emphasis 
is on what? His emphasis is on the humility of Jesus. Jesus' willful lowering and giving of Himself by taking on the form of a servant and being obedient to the point of death. It's Jesus, first in His full divinity, lowering Himself in also taking upon His full humanity. And then lowering Himself, if you will, once again to the point of obedience in death on the cross. It's a two-stage lowering. Now, I used last week in my sermon kind of a um, pre-algebra illustration, if you will. Somebody joked that maybe today I should use a calculus illustration. I will spare you. I I think there might be one that we could insert right here in this sudden shift, okay? But I will spare you. But I want you to notice that what happens is as the tone has been moving down in the lowering of Christ, now it redirects and moves directly upward. As now the Father acts. And how does the Father respond to Jesus' lowering of Himself? Verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him, that is Jesus, the name that is above every name. There are two things that Paul refers to here, and they are interconnected with one another. He has highly exalted Jesus. And the language there is that He has not just exalted Jesus, He has super exalted Jesus. He has hyper exalted Jesus. There is no greater exaltation that the Father could have given to the Son than the exaltation that He gives Him here. This is, this is more than just the fact that the Father has accepted the sacrifice of the Son on our behalf. The New Testament makes plain that one of the consequences, one of the declarations that is made in the Father raising Jesus from the dead is that it declares that the Father has accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. And that's a part of what is going on here. But Paul doesn't make any reference specifically to the resurrection. He doesn't make any specific reference to even the ascension of Jesus. He takes them both together as factual as, has, as have already happened. And he is saying that in that entire event, Jesus being raised from the dead and then 40 days later, going to be ascended to be with the Father. In that total action, the Father has raised up, has exalted the Son. And this is what the New Testament bears witness to elsewhere. Acts 2, 32-33. Peter, as he preaches there, on that day of Pentecost sermon. This Jesus, God raised up. There's the resurrection. And of that, we are all witnesses. 
being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. What is happening, Peter says, on, at Pentecost is because the Father has exalted the Son and the Spirit has been poured out on the people of Christ. But elsewhere, the New Testament bears witness to the exaltation of Christ over everything. Ephesians 1. Paul wants the Ephesians to know, he prays that they would know, the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, there's the resurrection, and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Romans 8.34, who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Colossians 3.1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This language of exaltation to the place of authority over all things. At the right hand of the Father is pointing to the place of supreme authority over all creation. And Paul says, and Peter says, that is where Jesus now resides. Because the Father has exalted the Son over all things. Later in his first letter that we call 1 Peter. Peter again writes, Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers having been subjected to Him. Everything in in subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. One last verse. Hebrews 1, 3, and 4. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Paul, as he looks at the willful servitude of the Lord Jesus Christ celebrates the fact that the Father's response after the death of Jesus was to raise Jesus from the dead and to seat Him as Lord over everything. Jesus is the One who is super exalted above all else. But Paul goes on. It is not only that the Father has highly exalted the Son over all things, but He has also bestowed on Him, He has given to Him the name that is above every name. I stopped in my reading of Hebrews 1 
verses 3 and 4, at the end of verse 3. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But the writer goes on, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. There is this affirmation that there is a name bestowed by the Father upon Jesus that is above any other name that could be given to him. And so the question becomes, in this exaltation of Jesus and the giving to him of a name, what is the name? Some think the the name is Jesus. The name by which he was known and by which he is still known the name that the angel told Joseph should be given to the child because the child was to come as a Savior. And Jesus, the the Greek for Jesus, finds its roots in the Hebrew Joshua, which points to, which indicates that the Lord saves. So perhaps the name that Jesus has been given is the name Jesus, because it points to His identity as the one and only Savior. And that's certainly possible. But I think there's more to it than that. I think the better way, and the majority of readers, see that the better way is to say that the name that the Father has bestowed upon the Son is the name Lord. Verse 11, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Why would we say that the name given to Jesus is the name or the title Lord? Turn with me to Isaiah 45. Isaiah chapter 45, beginning in verse 18. For thus says the Lord, and you see there, if you're following along, that that is printed in small caps. Some of you know this, it may be new for others. There's an important thing to recognize here in the Old Testament. When you're reading along in most modern English translations, as you come across the word Lord with small caps, that is the divine name, Yahweh, the covenant Lord, His God's personal name by which He reveals Himself to his people. It points to his personal identity as their covenant Lord and the ruler over all things. For thus says the Lord, Yahweh, who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. 
I am the Lord. There it is again. And there is no other. This exclusivity. There is one and only true and living God, and it is the Lord. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of David, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak in truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me? A righteous God and a Savior, there is none besides me. Now, let's pause here. What is God saying? There is none besides Him. There is no one to compare to Him. The gods of the nations are as nothing to Him. What have they done to compare with what God has done? Nothing. He is the one who is to be praised. He and He alone. Then what does He say in verse 22? Turn to Me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. And what is that word? Here is that word. Does it sound familiar? To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord declared that to Him the knees would be bowed. The tongues shall swear allegiance or shall confess. And now, what is the Apostle Paul doing in Philippians chapter 2? We're going to come more to it here in just a moment. But he uses the exact same language to point to the purpose of the Father in exalting the Son. Back in Isaiah, when God gave that prophecy to Isaiah and Isaiah proclaimed it, did God know that the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus, would come and would bring about the fulfillment of this prophecy. Absolutely. The Father knew what was going to take place. But as He prophesied, as He as he gave this word to Isaiah, and as Isaiah proclaimed to the people of Israel, the focus was that God will be praised. That God will be worshipped. And now, Paul writes that the Father has exalted the Son so that the Son would be the one before whom every knee would bow. That the Son would be the one every tongue would confess as Lord. And so there is 
here is there not an identification of the Father with the Son? So that when He says the name that has been given to Jesus is the very name of the Lord, is Yahweh Himself, the covenant-keeping God, so that God shows that it is the triune God who is the covenant-keeping God. And it is the Son who has brought to completion the purpose of the Father. This is not... This is not an equality that Jesus achieved. Because Paul has already said that he was in the form of God, that is, having the very attributes of God, being God. But Jesus did not account that equality with God, the status of His full divinity is something to be leveraged to his own advantage. But what happens? The Father, in seating the Son as ruler over all things, after the Son has humbled himself, the Father declares... He too is worthy of worship. He, the Son, is worthy of all praise. God explodes the reality of who our triune God is by declaring that the name of the Lord is not the exclusive purview of the Father. But the Lord is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus entrusted Himself to the Father in humbling Himself. 1 Peter 2.23 When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. And as Jesus entrusted Himself to the Father, the Father responds by exalting Jesus and showing Him to be who He is, and that is the King of kings and the Lord of lords." As Peter says in that Pentecost sermon that we referred to other, the Father did not abandon the Son, but He raised Him as ruler over all things. What is the implication of this for us? Step back. Why is Paul pointing to the work of the Son, and the work of the Father in this passage. This is not just an abstract theological discourse that the Apostle Paul is giving. But rather, he is saying, he is using this to remind the Philippians that they are to 
consider the interests of one another, to look out for the good of one another, to serve one another and not be concerned for themselves following the pattern of Jesus. And I think part of what he is doing is he's saying, look, just as Jesus entrusted Himself to the Father, and the Father responded by exalting Jesus as King over all things, brothers and sisters, as we submit to the will of the Father, and as we look out for the good of one another, and seek the growth in Christ's likeness, as we talked about two weeks ago, for one another, we can trust the Lord with the results. We don't have to be self-interested. We don't look out, have to look out for number one. We can look out for the purposes of God, which are to look out for one another and trust Him with the end results. Trust Him with the eternal results. Because that is precisely what Jesus has done. And the response of the Father is to exalt the Son and to give Him the name that is supreme over any other name that could be named. And that is that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is the Lord. Back when I was a middle school and high school student, there was, there was something that became popular. I think it became popular back then. Um, and as I look back on it, I'm thinking, what, what were they thinking? And it's the concept of a trust fall. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Go to youth camp. Get all the youth. We're not doing this with our youth, by the way. Okay, okay. So not, uh, don't, don't try this at home. The subtitles are right there. Okay. But I remember being at Ridgecrest and standing up on a block wall and I had to turn around backwards and crossed my arms, and there were all my classmates right behind me, and they had their hands interlocked. And I had to demonstrate my trust by falling backwards into their arms. And they caught me, and they passed me along, and then the next person got up. Trust falls. We demonstrated our trust by falling into the arms of, the, of another. What does this have to do with any of this and Jesus being exalted and us following Him? It has this to do. Jesus trusted the Father. He entrusted Himself to the Father, and the Father exalted Him. And in following His example, we are to trust ourselves, entrust ourselves to the Father by living as the people of Christ who give ourselves for the good of others, following the pattern that Jesus has given to us. Friends, there is no saying, I trust the Lord, if we are not willing to entrust our lives to the Lord and give our lives in sacrifice for one another. The exaltation of Jesus by the Father reminds us that we can trust the Father and entrust ourselves to Him and follow the submissive way of Jesus. But not only is Jesus exalted, Jesus is acknowledged to be Lord. Yes, the Father has exalted the Son, but for a purpose. For a purpose. 
Verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What is to be the result of the Father's exaltation of the Son? It is to be a recognition, a recognition that Jesus is indeed the Lord of lords, that He is the King over all things. The language of worship here of Jesus is comprehensive. What does it say? That every knee will bow. We will stop what we are doing with our lives and recognize the glory of Jesus. Every tongue will confess that we will stop with our mouths and admit the one thing that holds true above all else is that Jesus is Lord. It is a comprehensive worship of life. And friend, there is coming a day when absolutely every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. This is why I started where I started and said that it is indisputable. It is undeniable, though in this life there are those who will despise it. There are those who will dispute it. There are those who will deny it. But there is coming a day when no one will be able to deny this fact that Jesus is Lord of all. And so the question for us today is will we today bow the knee to Jesus? Because the Scriptures testify that it is for those who bow the knee to Jesus, the knee of their hearts, those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. In this life, for them, this future bowing of the knee, this future confessing of the Son, will be a joyous, glorious thing as they celebrate, as we read about in Revelation 5, the worthiness of the Lamb. But for those who will not bow the knee to Christ, for those who will not confess the Lordship of Christ in this life, in the life to come, they too will bow the knee. They will confess. But it will not be with joy. It will not be with gladness. It will be through eternally gritted teeth. But today, today, that can change for you if you don't know Christ. Today, do not harden your hearts, but hear of a Savior from sin and bow the knee of your heart in reverence to Him, 
Acknowledge Him as the Lord over all things. Turn over your life to Him today and begin a new life of seeking to follow Him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. It is only through Jesus that we come to the Father. It is only through Jesus that we are made right with God. And today, if you do not know Christ, today you can go to Him, trusting Him right where you are. But friends, this is not just comprehensive worship. This is astounding worship. And this goes back to what we observed a moment ago about the divine name being identified also with Jesus. What is the Father doing? Notice the language again is the language of result. Why has the Father exalted the Son and bestowed on Him the divine name? He has done so, so that every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All of creation, we just bypass that comprehensive aspect of it, but all of creation. And friends, this is astounding. Because when we read in the Old Testament, what is the expectation that God has for His people to worship Him? The expectation is that He is the only one that they will worship. Exodus chapter 20. You can listen or you can turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Genesis, Exodus, the giving of what we know as the Ten Commandments. The introduction and the first two are astounding to think about why God has exalted the Son. Why the Father has exalted the Son. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before Me. Excuse me. No other gods. No other gods are His people to have. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or above and heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments God will have nothing to do with the worship that is due him being given to anyone else And the Father says, worship the Son. Because the Son is fully God. And now He retains His full humanity. So that as fully God, as fully man, placed at the position of authority over all things, He is to be worshipped. There is no one like Him. Him. The rightful response to Jesus is worship. Yesterday, 
was the running of the Kentucky Derby. I think they said 148th or something like that. Big upset, according to those who know about horse racing. I'll take their word for it. I don't know anything about horse racing. But I lived in Louisville long enough to know that the Kentucky Derby is a big thing. And back in 2007, one big thing met another big thing. And that is Queen Elizabeth went to the Kentucky Derby. And all the Louisville news media was all to do about the proper response, the, the proper behavior to be given to Queen Elizabeth if you happen to cross her path at Churchill Downs. Now, according to the royal household, there are no formal requirements, but there are some traditional forms in having an audience with the queen. For men, the proper response is a neck bow from the head only. Women do a small curtsy. Other people prefer simply to shake hands in the usual way. On presentation to the queen, the correct formal address is your majesty. And subsequently, ma'am. There is a courteous response to be given to the queen to Queen Elizabeth, whether you're in Buckingham Palace or cross paths with her at Churchill Downs or somewhere else. Worship is not a courtesy to be given to King Jesus. Worship is the only right response that we are to give Him and that we will give Him for all eternity. What does this have to do with serving one another? Because again, that's the bigger context here that Paul is calling the Philippians to. It has this to do with serving one another. We cannot confess that Jesus is Lord and then live our lives in a way counter to that lordship. And the way in which the Lord has called His people to live their lives is to live after the pattern that He has given to us. And that is to be servants of one another. Matthew 10.24 A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. We are not above Jesus. And so, as he is Lord and he has given himself in service for us, so also we are to serve one another. But lastly, not only is Jesus exalted, not only is Jesus acknowledged as Lord, but in it all, the Father is glorified. Notice again, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God is glorified as Jesus is celebrated 
as Lord, as He is acknowledged as the King above all. That is to the glory of God the Father. Why? How is God glorified in our reverencing of Jesus? There are a number of ways, I think. One, and we're not going to go through all of them. I'm confident I don't have all of them. But how is the Father glorified? The Father is glorified, one, because His exaltation, His honoring of Jesus fulfills the very prayer of Jesus Himself. Jesus prayed in John 17.1, when Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify you. Jesus glorifies the Father in His obedience to the point of death. The Father glorifies the Son in the exaltation of the Son. And as a result, the Father is glorified because He is revealed to be the One who has accomplished these things. And the triune God is glorified as He is shown to be the one true and living God who has provided a salvation that none of us could have accomplished on our own. God is glorified in the exaltation of Jesus because the work of Jesus shows the love of God. The Father is glorified in the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus because it shows the power of God to raise Jesus from the dead. The Father is glorified in the exaltation of the Son because it shows the authority of God as the Father sets Jesus above every authority. The Father couldn't do that if He didn't have authority over everything, but because He does, He sets Jesus as authority over all things, thereby displaying the authority of God. The glory of God is revealed in the exaltation of Jesus because the graciousness of God is shown in the saving work of, God, of Jesus. His death and resurrection for us. The glory of God is revealed in the person and work and exaltation of Jesus because God is shown to be both just and justifier, Romans 3. The one who will address every sin. And the one who has provided forgiveness of sin in the person of Jesus. The Father is glorified in the humbling of the Son and the exaltation of the Son. What does this have to do with our life of looking out for one another's interests. What began with the humility of Jesus resulted in the glorification of the Father. And Jesus says that the same is to be true of us. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 
You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and do what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is exalted and the Father is glorified. As we live our lives after the pattern of Jesus, as we entrust ourselves to the Father, as we follow the path of humility and serve the interests of one another, the Father is glorified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You Thank You that You have revealed to us in Your Word that Jesus is Lord. Thank You, Father, that You have not only revealed the truth that Jesus is Lord, but You have shown to us that the fact that He rules over all things has consequences for how we live our lives here and now that we are to bow our hearts in reverence to Jesus, that we are to live following the way of Jesus, that we are to look forward, trusting You and anticipating that day when, indeed, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Father, help us Help us to grow in not merely repeating with our lips that Jesus is Lord, but help us, Father, to grow in reflecting with our lives that Jesus not only rules over all things, but more specifically, that Jesus rules over us. And Father, if there's anyone here today who does not know the saving Lordship of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that today Your Spirit would work so that with the people of Christ, they might too bow their knee and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, resulting in the praise of Your glorious grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.